something. And uh, Bob used a great quote, I think it was last week, um, where essentially the, the person that was writing the quote was saying that frequently the artists are the ones that actually sort of figure out what's going on in a culture before anybody else does. And uh, part of what we also said is that each of those artists, whether they're a believer or not, they can't help but communicate truth. And the reason they can't help but communicate truth is because they've been created in the image of God. And so whether you're living in the deepest, dark, darkest jungles of Africa or the Amazon, or if you're living in France, you have things that you believe are true, and you have things that you believe are right, you have things that you believe are good. And so when artists communicate those things, unwittingly what they're doing is they're actually giving glory to God, and they're demonstrating that they've been stamped with God's image. And so essentially we played these great songs, some of which were modern, Ray LaMontagne, some of which were a little bit older from Johnny Cash, but they were all doing the same thing, and they were basically saying we can find truth in art that is corroborated and even points us to Scripture. Now, that's on one end of the preaching spectrum, okay? It's kind of a little more, a little more uh, maybe a postmodern thing to do. Today, we're actually going to a very pre-modern thing to do, and we're actually jumping into something called the liturgical calendar. Now, the liturgical calendar has been in operation now for, uh, depending on which branch of the church you've been in, for over a 1,000 years. And so, uh, as David mentioned, this past Thursday was Ascension Day. It's the day that we remember 40 days after Jesus ascended into heaven. And so for us in the liturgical calendar, this is Ascension Sunday. This is the day that we do the same thing, right? And so it's, we're actually taking part in something that's very ancient. We're taking part in this uh, liturgical structure, this liturgical calendar, along with, uh, you know, literally millions of other Christians around the world, if not more than millions, who are also celebrating Ascension Sunday today. Now, here's what's interesting. is in the context of the church, or really in the context of Jesus' life, there are several major things that we always celebrate, right? The church is always celebrating Jesus' birth, right? We always remember to do that. It's Christmas, right? We always remember to, uh, to celebrate Jesus' death, right? We never miss out on celebrating that or even Easter, right? But one of the things that's interesting is we almost never talk about this idea of Jesus' ascension, okay? It's just sort of left out, even though the Bible talks about it, all over the place, even though the Nicene Creed, which Ryan read this morning, was written in 325 AD, mentioned it very succinctly as part of uh, the major point of what Jesus did and is doing. It's mentioned in the Apostles' Creed, which was written in the first century, right? It, it, it hearkens to it then, and it even hearkens to it in the Westminster Confessions and Catechisms and the Heidelberg Catechism. In other words, the ascension is all over the place in theology, it's all over the place in church history. But oddly enough, for most of us sitting in this room, we don't ever think about the ascension. It never really plays a part in our own personal spirituality. In fact, there's a great quote. Uh, there's an article called Ascension and Vocation by Laura Fabricki. And I'm going to read this quote really quickly. She hearkens to this, and she's actually talking about a Tim Keller sermon. But she says this, Check out the Hallmark store, Timothy Keller says, and you'll notice that there are greeting cards for key moments in Christ's life that are recognizable from the contours of the Apostles' Creed. There are cards commemorating Jesus' birth, Christmas, his crucifixion, death, and burial, Good Friday, and of course, his resurrection, Easter. But the cards stop where the creed continues. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Few of us in the United States give out ascension greeting cards. They simply aren't on the shelves. What she's alluding to, what Tim Keller is talking about, is that we live in a culture where functionally and practically, those of us who are Christians, we don't really even think about 
the implications of the fact that Jesus has ascended and sits on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, even though that's where he's been for the last 2,000 years. Another quote, this quote is by uh, Maria J. Dawn in a book called The Unnecessary Pastor. Don't take that too far, by the way. I might be unnecessary, but maybe not. Anyway, here's the quote. The quote is this. Ascension Day is the perfect church holiday because the world can't steal it. The culture around us has quite ruined Christmas and Easter. Of course, the world owned Christmas as its festival for the restoration of the sun before the early Christians used it to disguise their celebration of Christ's birth. That's actually true. But the world has now stolen it for its consumeristic purposes and has seized Easter for the same idolatry, also true. In my teen years, I played clarinet in the high school band for the town Christmas parade at which Santa Claus was flown in by helicopter, hearkening to the commercialism. Later, I heard they flew in the Easter bunny for Easter. But the world hasn't got the foggiest notion what to do with someone flying out. Isn't that that good? I mean, mean, really, both of those quotes hearken to the same thing. And what they're essentially saying is, we don't really know what to do with the ascension, right? Whether we believe it theologically or not, we live, we work, and we pray as if Jesus' work was finished when he rose again. Game over, right? Everything's done, right? So we live our Christian lives as if Jesus is on the, the shore of some heavenly beach in a lounge chair, reading a good novel, drinking fruity drinks with umbrellas in them, right? He's been done for the last 2,000 years. That's, what we, that's kind of what we think. It's how we act. It's how we live. It's how we work. It's how we pray, right? That Jesus is just done, mission accomplished. And the truth is he is done with redemption, but there's so much more that he's been doing and he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. So what is the significance of Jesus' ascension? Does it matter to us at all? Because we live like it doesn't. Let's take a moment and let's pray. Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the message of the ascension. Uh, that Jesus um, completed his work here uh, physically on earth, but then was taken up into heaven physically and now is seated at your right hand, where he continues to work on our behalf. Father, I pray that this morning we would gain a new perspective on Jesus' ascension and his rule and his reign. And it would really change the way that we live the lives that you've called us to live here on earth. I pray that this message of the ascension would change the way that we pray, Father. I pray that it would change our attitude from one of self-reliance to one of reliance upon Jesus. I pray that our understanding of the ascension would change our perspective uh, from one of insecurity to one of confidence, Father. I pray that you would do this through the power of your Holy Spirit. And in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, it's in his name that we pray all these things today. Amen. Okay, now I'm going to ask you a question really quickly. And it's okay to shout something out. Uh, That may not work at a lot of churches, but it's okay here at Seven Hills Fellowship. So I'm going to ask you a question. Feel free to answer it out loud. All right, it's not rhetorical. So the question is this. Of the 66 different Robin Hood movies or TV shows that have ever been made, and there have been 66 of them. I checked it on Wikipedia last night. Um... What's the best Robin Hood movie or TV show ever go? Okay, the Kevin Costner one. Which one? Was, what was that called? Prince of Thieves, thank you. Okay, that was one. What's another one? Errol Flynn, awesome. Thank you very much. What's another one? Sean Connery. Was that, which one was Sean Connery in? 
Do you remember what the name of it was? Robin Mary. Awesome. Okay, I'm glad you said that. Okay, let me stop right there. Okay, those are all wrong. Let me say that. This is not, there's no interpretation to this at all, right? There's a right answer to this question. You guys all missed it, okay? I, I did hear somebody shout it, but I intentionally ignored you. Anyway, so let's take a look at the best one ever. Okay, let me, get, let me predict what's going to happen. In three hours, you're going to be sitting by the pool with your kids somewhere, and you're going to be humming a song. And you're like, what is that song I'm humming? And then you're, the word Udalali is going to come out of your mouth somewhere. What is that? Anyway, it's not as good as the rooster song, which is also from the same movie. But whatever. Anyway, the point is, that is the best Robin Hood movie ever. And if you think anything different, it's okay. You're just wrong. Whatever. Anyway, so the basic narrative of Robin Hood, the story of Robin Hood, is, is this, okay? So there, there's King Richard, and King Richard is the rightful, uh, the rightful heir of the throne of England. But, but King Richard goes off to fight in the Crusades. As he goes off in the Crusades to fight this noble or ignoble battle, depending on what your perspective is, and, uh, but he goes off to fight this battle, and while he is off fighting in the Crusades, his brother, Prince John, usurps the throne. And he takes control of the throne, and he begins to, uh, to be involved in all these you know, evil and wicked practices. So he raises taxes so much so that the poor people can't afford to pay them, and then they're imprisoned. And not only that, but he, he raises taxes so much that he then sends out the sheriff of Nottingham to go out into uh, all the countryside and to try to, to get the money from all the people. You remember the great scene in the Robin Hood Disney movie where he goes into the church, and he goes over to the poor box, and he takes out the last shilling or whatever happens to be in there, and anybody who can't pay goes to jail, right? Because there's this horrible imbalance of power because an evil uh, prince has usurped the throne. Well, what happens is that Robin Hood and Little John, who were floating on their backs in a little pond there, um, Robin Hood and Little John come along, and they try to fight against the evil Prince John. And in so doing, they sort of keep the balance of power between evil and good, but what's very clear in the movie and what's clear in all of the different uh, uh, versions of Robin Hood is that nothing will be made right until King Richard returns and ascends to sit upon his throne while he will undo all of the evil that has been done by the wicked Prince John. That's the narrative. That's the story. And here's what's interesting about that story is we hear that same narrative over and over again, not only in Robin Hood, but in all sorts of other parts of literature and film. It's this idea of until the rightful king reigns once again upon the throne, nothing will be right. We see it in Aragorn, right? In the Lord of the Rings. We see it over and over again. And the reason we see this narrative is because it's ultimately the narrative of Scripture. That same narrative is found in Luke, and it's found in Acts, and it's found all over the New Testament. And it's that Jesus, like King Richard, has been on a crusade. But his crusade was to conquer sin and to conquer death. And then he, too, 
returns, he ascends to his rightful throne from which he rules, right? That's the idea of this concept of the ascension. It's that Jesus isn't done, but rather he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from which he rules, from which he reigns. Listen to Luke chapter 24, verses 45 through 53. Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures, the whole narrative of scripture. And he said to them, this it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things and behold, I am sending the promise of my father upon you, but stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them while he blessed them. He parted from them and was carried up or ascended into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. What we see here is what we see in Luke. It's what we see in Acts. It's what we see in the writings of Paul. And it's that Jesus indeed ascended not only up into heaven or into heaven, this other reality that we don't know too much about, but more importantly, he ascended onto his throne as the king of kings and the lord of lords, right? Listen to this quote again by Fabricki. Again, she's talking about this sermon by Keller. Look up at the screen. The, the quote goes like this. Keller's ascension sermon focuses on how we tend to misunderstand uh, what the word ascend means. It's not a change in altitude. Jesus isn't simply going up as if in a hot air balloon. He's ascending, As a king ascends a throne, in fact, he ascends because he alone is the king of kings with dominion over every every aspect of reality. His ascension is his enthronement, bringing a new relationship with us and the whole world, says Keller. As the enthroned king, Jesus is directing a cosmic transition plan, one that will bring about a new heavens and a new earth. What we see in scripture is there are all these psalms, and these psalms are called ascension psalms. And they were written to celebrate the coronation or the ascension of a king upon the throne. And so the message of the ascension is that Jesus is the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. And he rules from on high that he's bringing his kingdom to come, Alan and Jesse. That he's actively working to bring his kingdom to come here in Rome, Georgia, Seven Hills Fellowship. The question is, though, how does that impact us? How does it matter to us? in our day-to-day lives? How is it going to matter to you when you walk out of this room this morning that Jesus rules and reigns from on high? Does it make any difference to you at all? We're going to look at three ways in which it makes a difference very quickly. The first is that we see that Jesus ascends in order to prepare a place for us. That Jesus ascends and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty to to prepare a place for us. Listen to John 14. Jesus is the last night of his life He's getting ready to go to the cross the next day. He's encouraging the disciples, and here's what he tells them. He says, let not your hearts be troubled, because they were troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now, you're probably used to hearing that verse in some different translations. Sorry, I'm sick. 
I'm just, I'm not teary. I'm just choking. Anyway, um, <clears throat> you're probably used to hearing that translation in the King James because the King James basically says that Jesus is going to prepare mansions for us. And we hear that. And, you know, I remember hearing that as a kid and thinking, yeah, I need a mansion, right? You know what I mean? I, am, I need many bathrooms and suites and an indoor soccer field, right? And I need all that good stuff. I need a mansion. And it sounds great. The problem is it's actually probably not the best translation. In fact, it's definitely not the best translation. And so where the NIV and the ESV translated or how they translated is they say rooms. And really the Greek word they're translating rooms from would be maybe even a more specific uh, analogy would be resting place or abiding place. And so what Jesus is saying is you guys are exhausted You guys are worn out. You guys are stressed out, right? You've been working hard. You're going to work a lot harder for a lot longer. And I'm going to go to heaven, and I'm going to prepare a resting place for you. A resting place. A place for you to rest. Does that sound good to anybody? You know, those of you, some of you have been working for 40 years, and you're thinking about retirement, and you think, ooh, you know what, that mountain house where I can go sit on the back porch over the stream, and I can trout fish. Right, and I can read books and I can play golf. I need to just rest. I've been working hard. You know, for some of you, you just finished the academic year. And uh, again, over and over again, I hear from whether it's students or professors, I'm just slow looking forward to summer. I just need to rest, you know. Uh, for those of you who are moms, sorry, I got nothing for you. Anyway, you don't get anything. You get something. Your husband can maybe give you something. Whatever. Anyway. So, but the point is, is that what Jesus taps into here is he taps into this idea and, and the reality, frankly, that, that we will need a place to rest, that we long for a place to rest, that we long not only for a place to rest, but we long for a place to call home. It's what all of us are looking for, really, right? It, just, it actually is. There's, there are themes and themes and themes after Scripture that talk about this idea of home because we are strangers and we are aliens, and we're longing for a place called home. You know, if that weren't true, then, then shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition would never be popular. But you guys are familiar with that show, hopefully, right? It's Ty Pennington, the guy that says, move that bus. Well, I, again, we, don't, we haven't had cable for years, and so I don't get a chance to see lots of these shows. But every now and then I do see one. And not too long ago, I saw one where Ty Pennington and his crew went to this family. They were the Lucas family up in Virginia. And uh, this, uh, the father in the family had, uh, had bought this plot of land. And he, they didn't have much money, so they bought the land, and they progressively started to try to build their dream house on this land. And they got about, you know, to the point of construction where they had laid the foundation, they had put the cinder block down, and they had begun to put the, uh, the two-by-fours up. And so there was sort of a stick frame of this house. When the, uh, when the war began over in Iraq, and he was, a, he was in the reserves, and so he was actually had to go over and serve in Iraq. And so the house for three or four years, sat there with no more work being done on it. And in the midst of this, uh, Ty Pennington found out that this house was standing out in the middle of a field, unfinished, and uh, they actually got this man, uh, Mr. Lucas, Sergeant Lucas, to come back, and uh, they rebuilt his home for him. And so, you know, the way that it works is Ty Pennington and the designers, they meet with the man, and they meet with the wife, and they meet with the kids, and they ask him all sorts of great questions you know, they say, you know, what would your perfect room look like? What do you love? What do you like? What makes you feel restful? What energizes you? All these things. And then they, they send the, the family off and they build these homes. And so they build the rooms even perfectly just so that they're perfect for those kids. And so in this story, 
One of the kids loved pirates, and so his theme was a pirate room. And so they finish the house, and the little boy walks into his pirate room, and he's just you know, elated, and he's astounded, and he's just amazed that he gets this great pirate room. And one of the other kids, it's an ocean theme, so he walks in, there are uh, you know, aquariums filled with fish, and there's all these you know, giant fish that have been painted on the wall, and it's perfect for him. And then the husband walks in, who's been in Iraq now for the last four years, and he walks into the living room, and it's not necessarily a room, it's not necessarily anything uh, individually particular about the house, but he just begins to sob. And he's heaving, and he's weeping, because the home is perfect. And, and after being away from home for the last four years, he, he gets it, and it makes all the sense in the world to him, and it undoes him so much so that you have this big army sergeant who is heaving and sobbing on the TV show. I loved it. It was awesome. And the idea, again, is that what Jesus is saying here is he's saying, look, he, he's, he's saying, I'm going. I'm ascending to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and I want to prepare a perfect place for you. I've been spending the last 2,000 years making it perfect. Does that make sense? You know, and so what's going to happen is that, you know, David Slade's going to walk into his perfect room, and there's going to be this big, you know, Hispanic bass guitar sitting over there along the wall, right? And, uh, you know, last night, Levi, here's a dollar. Levi was telling me about what he wants his room to look like one day. And he said, you know, we've got the spare refrigerator downstairs in our basement. And he's like, we could put that on the wall of my room. Because for him, it's snacks, you know what I mean? And so it's access to lots of snacks. That'd be perfect for him. You know, for some others of you in here, it might, it might be a thousand different things. But the point is, is that Jesus knows you even better than you know yourself. And he's been preparing a resting place for you for the last 2,000 years so that when you finish your 60, 70, or 80 years here on earth, you're worn out, you're exhausted, you're stressed out, and you're undone. When you enter into his presence, you're going to feel more at home than you've ever felt before because it's going to be perfect. And it's a wonderful thing to think about the fact that Jesus said, unless I go, unless I go up to heaven, I won't be able to prepare this place for you, but I am going and in my father's house, there are many rooms, and your room is going to be perfect. It's going to be the best, better than you could have imagined. And so as you walk out of this building today onto the streets of Rome, Georgia, wherever you're going, I hope you understand that you have an advocate in heaven, Jesus, who is doing something in heaven right now that is just for you. He is making a resting place for you. The second thing that we see in Scripture, and the truth is there are about eight or ten of these. We're only going to cover a couple. But the second thing that we see is that Jesus not only ascends to prepare a place for us, but Jesus ascends in order to give us the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read uh, John chapter 15, uh, and then I'm also going to read a little section from John chapter 16. Jesus, again, this is the same section. It's the last night of his life. But he says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. But in fact, it is best for you that I go away because if I don't, the advocate won't come. If I do go away, then I will send him to you. Now, part of what Jesus is saying here is he's referring to the helper or the advocate. And the Greek word there is paraclete, right? And essentially a paraclete at that time was a defense attorney. It was somebody who could be a counselor or an advocate or a helper when somebody needed to go to court, in other words, you keep your mouth shut and let this guy represent you. And so what Jesus is basically saying is, 
look, when I go away, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you to be your defense attorney, to be your comforter, to be your advocate. And this helper, the job of this helper is to sanctify us. The job of this helper is to convict us of sin. The job of this helper is to enable our hearts and heads to believe in the gospel, right? That's part of what the Holy Spirit does. This helper goes before us in evangelism. That's the direct context of John chapter 15 here, because what Jesus is doing is on the last night of his life, he's basically saying, I want you to love uh, and, and, and remain in me, right? He says, remain in me. Then I want you to love the brothers. And then finally, I want you to go out into the world and testify about me. To which when he says that, all the disciples go, and they get a little stressed out. And he says, but don't worry, because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to go before you. And he's going to actually testify to people's hearts and people's heads. And so for those of us who are nervous about sharing the gospel, the good news for you this morning is that Jesus says, look, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit to do all those other things, but I'm giving you the Holy Spirit particularly so that he will go before you and he will share the gospel with people. He will convict people of sin. He will enlighten people's hearts and their minds to believe in me. And then all you got to do is all you got to do is share the gospel and the Holy Spirit's job is ultimately to bring people to repentance. That's good news, right? Quick story. I've told you this before, but it's been a couple years. I had the chance to share the gospel with my Uncle Jerry. Uh, it's been now probably nine years since he passed away, but um, I got a chance to... He, he, I can't get to tell you the whole story, but let's just say this. He, he wasn't a Sunday school guy, right? Uh, he wasn't even a particularly moral guy, but I had the chance to share the gospel with him and uh, for years, you know, I was a pastor. I was kind of a spiritual kid. He knew it, and he would give me a hard time about it, but it was all in good fun. But uh, I had the chance to share the gospel with him. And Krista and I prayed about it and prayed about it and prayed about it. And I had thought about it and thought about it and thought about it. And uh, we went down to, to Florida where he was living at the time. And I got a chance to talk to him. And I said, hey, look, Uncle Jerry, you know, for years we've joked around about this whole Christianity thing. And you give me a hard time. And you've called it a religious boondoggle. And it's funny. We've all laughed about it. But I basically said to him, I want you to know that I actually do believe that this is true. Like, I really actually believe that Jesus is still alive, that he rose from the dead. And, and I really believe that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. And I started to share the gospel with him. And I got about two-thirds of the way through my presentation. And my Uncle Jerry basically said, hey, stop, stop, hold on. And, and for a minute, I thought he was going to go, I don't need to hear this, buddy. And what he said was, I'm ready. I actually want to pray to receive Jesus. And I was like, um, flipping to my note cards. Like, I haven't gotten to that part yet. You know what I mean? <laughs> but the point is that Jesus says right here, I'm going to give you the helper, the advocate, the defense attorney. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit who will go before you. And so it's not up to you to lead anybody into a relationship with Jesus. That's his job. That's the Holy Spirit's job. It's just your job to tell them why you have hope in him. Jesus says, I'm, I'm ascending to, to prepare a place for you. I'm ascending to give you the Holy Spirit who's going to do all this stuff that you can't do. And the final thing that we see in Scripture is just, that Jesus ascends to be our high priest. We're going to look at two passages of Scripture, Hebrews 4 and 7. They're a little bit long. Stick with me, if you will. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. In other words, one of the implications of Jesus sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, is that we can hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. In other words, this high priest 
knows what it's like to be us. He's been tempted in every way that we are, yet he is without sin. You know how great it feels to talk to somebody about a particular temptation when you think you're all alone in the world and you're absolute freak? And it's nice to go to somebody and say, sometimes I get jealous or sometimes I feel insecure. And you think you're the only person on the planet that's ever felt insecure or jealous. And the other person goes, yeah, I've wrestled with that myself. And you're like, thank goodness, I'm not a weirdo. Jesus has been tempted in every way that we are yet he's without sin. So he can identify with our weaknesses. But one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, therefore let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Good news, good news, good news. Jesus has ascended, and every single bit of it is good news for you and for me. Every single bit of it is Jesus going, hey, I'll take it, I'll take it, put that on my plate, put that on my shoulders, I'll take it. Verse 23 of Hebrews 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have a high priest, such a high priest, holy innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Now, in various passages of Scripture, a heavenly courtroom is pictured, whether that was in Job or Revelation chapter 12. And in Job, there's this heavenly courtroom, courtroom, and Satan is up there, who's the accuser, right? And Satan stands in the presence of the believers, and he accuses them before God, right? It says in Revelation chapter 12, that he uh, accuses them, that he seeks to deceive them, that he lies uh, and he tries to, to, to make God somehow think that they're guilty. And in the Job passage, the courtroom is just Satan and God. But the beautiful thing about Revelation chapter 12 is that courtroom now has a defense attorney where Jesus stands and intercedes on our behalf. And so when Satan goes, hey, you should see that thing that BP did. You can't forgive him for that. And Jesus just stands there And he can open up his arms and hold out his hands that have nail prints in them and nail prints in his feet and a hole in his side. And he can talk to his heavenly father and he can say, I paid the price for that sin. And not only did I pay the price for that sin, but I paid the price for all the sins of all of those who would trust in me for all of humanity. And God listens to his son and he says, innocent. And he says, not guilty because the blood of my son was more than enough to cover over all of the sins that all of us would ever commit throughout the course of all of eternity. Does that make sense? Jesus has ascended and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, so that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus has been able to save us to the uttermost. Does that make sense? It's good news, right? So very quickly by way of transition, this morning we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. And so on tables behind this front section, we have bread and wine. And on this side, we have bread and grape juice. And up in the uh, audience up there, we have bread and grape juice again. And what this meal reminds us is that Jesus says, look, if you trust in me, if you've received me, and if you trust in me for your salvation completely, and you've quit trusting in your own good works, or you have believed that I've been able to, to cover over all of your bad works, and it's all about Jesus and all about faith in him, then what Jesus does is he says, 
you can come to this table in confidence, right? Not in insecurity. You don't have to go to the table in fear that somehow God is angry with you anymore. Because what the gospel communicates is that the wrath or the judgment that God had, he poured out on his son. What this meal communicates is that the guilt that was rightfully yours, once you trusted in Jesus, that guilt, all of those guilty things were placed upon Christ and he was punished in your place on the cross so that now when you come to this table, you can come with a declaration of not guilty over your head. And not just not guilty, but righteous. You can come to this table in complete confidence knowing that you have been saved to the uttermost. And so the appeal of this table today is for all of you in this room who have trusted in Christ alone for your salvation, right? If you haven't made that declaration internally or externally that you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, then I would simply invite you to sit back, ponder it, think about it, pray about it, dialogue with God about it, watch the people uh, of the family of God as they do receive the bread and wine or the bread and grape juice today. For those of you who are sitting in the seats today that have sinned over and over and over again, and it's been the same sin over and over and over again, or it was that one sin that you think is just too big, it's too huge, God can never forgive me for that one, it was too big. What I want you to hear today communicated in this meal is that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and you can now approach the throne of his heavenly Father in complete confidence, not because of your record, but because of his. That is the good news of the gospel. That is the good news of the Lord's Supper. There's nothing you can do if you trust in Jesus to make God love you any more or any less than he does right now simply because you are his daughter or you are his son. I'm going to read the words of institution, and then after I read these words, I'll pray, and then I want you to take time, and I want you to let that sink in. I want you to think about the reality of Christ ascended, sitting at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and the reason he's there is for you. It's for you. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us an image of your son enthroned on high as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Father, I pray that you would give us an emotional and a spiritual awareness that Jesus sits at your right hand bodily, really interceding for us, sending the Holy Spirit out for us to empower us. Father, that we would have a real image of Jesus preparing real abiding, resting places for us, Father. I pray that today your spirit would work through us, that when we walk up to these tables of bread and wine or bread and grape juice, that we would approach the throne of your grace and mercy, not in fear, not in insecurity, but rather that we would approach these tables in confidence, Father. 
in knowing that your son Jesus did it all completely, that he accomplished everything that needed to happen to conquer sin and death on our part, on our part and that now he gets to tell Satan to shut up because he stands in heaven ruling and reigning, interceding on our behalf. Father, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. Father, we pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.